This is John DeFalve from John Sandow's Bookshop in London. Today, I'm honoured to have with me on Zoom the novelist Robert Edrick. A decade or two ago, when I used to review regularly in The Spectator and elsewhere, I did the honours several times to Robert and once wrote that his was the most significant body of work from a novelist in a generation. It remains true that in 35 years of selling books at John Sandow's, his novels have meant more to me than those of practically any other novelist. He is prolific. His work may be loosely divided into groups. There are the superb novels of the mid-90s about collapse at the fringes of empire, Broken Lands, which recounts Franklin's Arctic expedition, Elysium, set in Tasmania in the 1860s, and The Book of the Heathen, which is set in the Congo of Conrad's Heart of Darkness. Then there are the two great post-war novels, Peacetime, set in East Anglia in 1946, where an airfield is being decommissioned, and Kingdom of Ashes, set in a provincial town in Germany at the same time, in which a British officer is interrogating German prisoners. His Gathering Light and Salvage are complementary novels about water. There are novels set in 1890s London involving the repellent Alistair Crowley, in Zodiac Light is a brilliant novel about Ivor Gurney and the superb In Desolate Heaven in 1997 preempted Pat Barker with a novel set in a sanatorium in the First World War. Across his various backdrops, it is possible to identify consistent themes. Above all, a sense of anticipated loss and a fascination with technicians. His prose is unlike anyone else's steady in its rhythms, precise and perfectly suited to his content. Indeed, the style is integral to the nature of the work. After roughly a novel every year for 20 years, there was nothing after 2018 until a small packet arrived last year with a little book called My Own Worst Enemy. Published by the Shoestring Press, it was accompanied by a note from the author saying he hoped I would enjoy it but unfortunately the book was already out of print. That was a pity because I did enjoy it. And indeed it is, I think, an extraordinary book. And I'm glad to say that it has now been picked up and reprinted by a less tiny small press called Swift. So now after a rather wordy preamble, welcome Robert Edrick. Thank you, thank you. Now my own worst enemy, of course, is not a novel, it is a memoir. Why have you written a memoir? It is. I, I, it, it's a strange thing. I've never reflected my own life, my own history in any of my books. I've never dealt with contemporary Britain apart from a trilogy of crime novels I wrote about 20 years ago. And I've never, I've never been interested in exploring my own past or even thinking about it to any great extent. Uh, and and uh, the, the strange thing is, during lockdown, I kept starting new books and then realising, A, that I was running out of a bit of steam, and B, that I had probably already written them. I kept having great ideas for books and then realising, here was another man at the edge of empire time, understanding <laughs> stability, wandering along the right line of a shore and thinking about, you know, the terrors and horrors to come. Uh, and I started, I realised that, you know, I hadn't done this. And I started writing the pieces in My Own Worst Enemy. There are 55, 60 chapters. They're all three and four pages long. And they're bits and pieces I wanted to record because they're the tiny pieces of that first 15 or 16 years of my life that have remained with me for 50 years. 
the second impetus was I got slight, I'm, I'm a great fan of, of histories and biographies and memoirs, but I got slightly weary of picking up a memoir, which began, my great, great, great grandfather arrived from Dublin with a donkey and four shillings and a bag of carrots on his back. And from this, the family was made. And I thought it would be quite strange, quite unusual, and just as interesting for me, simply to delve into the memories, which have obviously become stories, obviously been reworked with my sort of writer's mind, but which still existed. And the fact and the fiction in them, they're 99% true, but the 1% the, the, the I have no control over is the way in the past 50 years they might have altered. If you tell a story 50 times, it slightly alters, but these are honest, straightforward. They're vignettes as opposed to chapters really of places and people and events that I've held with me and that have become the core of my, I don't know, backstory, I suppose. There's a um, line, I think very, very early on, you, you say that, that the memoirs has nothing to do with your fiction, but there's a line in it very early on. You, you say something about consequences. Whatever happened, whatever a conversation or exchange now took place in my father's life, everything would be overridden by those, we'll get on to what it's gonna be overridden by, but mm. the sense of consequences coming yes. on a single event is very striking from this memoir. It, well, we led, a, a, I was going to say unusual life, but I mean, anyone who reads the book will discover the, 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 what my father was like. It's fair to say he and I never got on. Uh, he's still alive. I haven't seen him or spoken to him for a long time now. But we led a life which was, I, I, I always thought was completely unreflected in most memoirs. People needed to have something of great significance, a great death, a great illness, a great event, an attachment to an important event elsewhere. And that never happened in my life. What happened was I was attached to a family in which one or two very small, seemingly inconsequential things happened, and which, but which, which to my young and forming mind were very important in the way we were brought up, the way we regarded the wider world, the way we the, the way we found ourselves in that world and it was a, it was when you're a child of course you know no different you think that's what the world is but as you grow older you look back and you think well this was wrong or this should have been done differently and that might be unfair looking back you know and having the the, the, the ability to recreate that past but the, the consequences of what happened for the first certainly 10 or 15 years of my life, I think have remained with me. And I think, I don't really understand how and why, and it was certainly never conscious, but A, as I've just already told you, I never wrote about contemporary Britain or my own part in it, or, or the, my kind of family's life in it. And it was pointed out to me, and this came as an absolute surprise about five years ago, Somebody said, you've written 30 books. There are no families in them. There isn't a family. There's not a man and a woman living together with children. Did that come but as a surprise to you? It 
it come as a surprise because I, I rebutted it instantly. I said, no, no, look, there's this, there's this, there's this. And, 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 th and this, this person, she said, they're not families. That's a man <laughs> living with other men. That's a woman looking for something. That's a man trying to reestablish a place in the world. I didn't, ex I didn't worry over much about this. And I didn't even think, well, have I done this deliberately? Because it was an, an, an unconscious, subconscious thing. And I, I, always, I always think that with writers of fiction, A, don't overthink it to begin with. And secondly, it was ex it's exciting. It's very fulfilling, writing fiction. But I wouldn't want to endlessly reflect the life I lead. I want to be that colonial administrator, that Tasmanian explorer. Laura, yeah. I want to, you know, live with, with Alistair Crowley and, and, and with uh, Bram Stoker in the Lyric Theatre. And so I, th I think that's probably what I, it was. It, you could say it was a massive act of displacement. But um, that central, it's not exactly event, but circumstance in your early life from which those consequences flowed um, mm -hmm. are, upon the family. Will you tell us what that was? Because it's, it's an extraordinary thing. Well, the event was very simple. My father decided when I was, I think I was about 12 or 13, that he would wear, he was, a, he, he was balding. He decided he would wear a wig. And the very straight, my father was a very sort of vain man, very preening, very self-regarding, very old fashioned in many ways. Uh, and but the, the, the thing about a wig is the very the very terrible thing about a wig is that everybody knows that a man is wearing a wig. <laughs> and yet the man himself has to wear a wig to pretend he has a head of hair. It's an open secret which becomes very, very corrosive. What do you do? Do you point to that man and say you're wearing a wig? Or do you go along with the deceit? And once you've once you've gone along with the deceit, which is what we did as a family, all of us, there were five of us in a two up, two down terraced house. Once you go along with that deceit, everything else is stuck behind it. And the other thing which occurred to me is that a man where I know it's it's probably a, a false association, but how trustworthy is a man wearing a wig? What does that man represent to the world? It's an, it's, there's nothing, I, I did actually make the point in another book of mine about the, the book about Bramwell Bronte. There is where he had to live with his sister's secrets and his own failings and secrets. And he makes the point, what, what is there more corrosive than a public secret? When everybody in a community knows something which you have to maintain the pretense of. And we lived as a family, uh, and, and it did govern the way we lived to a very great extent. But fortunately for me, it did, it, 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 apart from being the thing which, you know, we all had to be constantly aware of, it, 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 was, a, it was an almost insignificant event which, around which everything could be structured because nothing big had happened in my life up until 18. And I have no intentions of writing a memoir beyond 18. And I have thought about that as well. And I think I became incredibly more fulfilled in my own private independent existence from the age of 18 onwards when I went to university, uh, little aware of what it was I was going to because no, I, I never knew anyone who'd been to university. And I think the first 18 years of my life were, were very, very different to the subsequent 
years. Um, and that's perhaps perhaps why, given having given it another 45, 50 years, I did, cons did consider sitting and writing. Of course, with lockdown, we've been here for nearly two years now, I began to look at the little bits and pieces I'd written, having wanted to save them for myself, and I began to realise I could stick them together. Uh, and I do this with my novels. I write the chapters left, right and centre, as and what occurs, and then I spend... The, 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 the first big revision, trying to fit them into place. I do everything in pencil and paper, uh, with pencil and paper, so I can actually juggle them around physically before I sit down with my two fingers and type them up. The, the, the sense of this experience, this phenomenon of your father's, uh, you call it a toupee rather than a wig, and you make the yeah. distinction between them. It's, no. it's, it's, <laughs> There's this reading it, of course, in many ways, it's very, very funny. It's also extraordinarily powerful because of the influence over you and your brother and sister and your mother that it has. You refer to it controlling everything, dominating everything. It's a, in respect. For all that it's funny, it's very powerful description throughout the book of this strange way of controlling people through his toupee, control through toupee. I think to keep, to put, to put things into context, my father had an incredibly difficult life. He was one of six and his father died when the man was 37 and his mother died when I was one. I do talk about, there's one photograph uh, linking me to her, which I, I don't know who took it. I hope my father took it. Uh, but the six children, they were aged between about 21 and 10, were left together in a council house to bring each other up instead of splitting them up and sending them to orphanages. The, hope, the six children, three brothers and three sisters, were left. And so each, brother, each of the older children had a responsibility for the younger. And the older children more or less all left, left school at the first opportunity with very few qualifications, if any. And all of them started working. And the three boys, of course, were instantly conscripted into the army at 18 to do their national service. Uh, and then my father came out of national service met my mother who became pregnant with me before they married uh, which is a great deal in 1956 Sheffield and so in a sense my father was in addition to having a, a, a hard life himself was caught up in a sequence of events whereby he found himself a working man with a family and a house uh, almost you know by the by the time he was in his, his mid-20s and Nothing had, nothing had stopped and started for him. It had been a continuous, a, a, a continuous journey, uh, forgive that word, from the death of his father to himself as a father with three young children. And he reminded you of his own difficulties? Frequently, because I think he, he was determined... Uh, well, I said that's a, a strong word, but I, he tried. He brought his children up the way he'd been brought up, which mm. was, you know, an incredibly hard, difficult life. Uh, and it was a very, it, it was a, 
it was a a strange time. If the swinging 60s happened, I saw nothing of them. Mm. I heard about them 30 or 40 years later. Uh, But the the 60s in Sheffield didn't swing. It was a place, and anyone looking at the front of the the jacket of the the, the memoir today, it was a place of, of bomb sites and slum clearances a little bit of modernity here and there, but we didn't know it was a you know a way forward for Sheffield. Uh, when I when uh, the, the last year I lived in Sheffield, the Clean Air Act came in, and all the black buildings had to be sandblasted. Everything was dark. We, we had smogs and dirt and fogs. Uh, it was a completely different city. Uh, and my father lived in this city of men. They were they were mostly men who ducked and dived were mostly labourers who brought themselves up. They, then my father was promoted uh, into running the stores in a garage. Uh, but it was, it, was a, it was an incredibly hard life. There wasn't much time for planning or for achieving any kind of ambition, to be honest. You say you don't get on with him. And, and, the, and there's a sense throughout the book, of course, that you find him extremely difficult or found him extremely difficult. Um, but hearing you talk now, there's a sense in, in which you forgive him. It, it, perhaps, uh, perhaps that's too strong a word. You accept him. It, I do accept. I, I understand it now. Uh, I don't have children of my own, so I cannot understand, you know, what that must have been like for him as, you know, uh, uh, as a younger man himself. Uh, I do. I, I, I'm, I'm, forgiveness is probably wrong because. You know, things could have been very, very different. Uh, we needn't have lived a lot, lived the life we did to, you know, to, to, to such, such an extent. But I can see it now. But perhaps it's needed the distance of all those, you know, those decades and of not having seen him for 20 years uh, to achieve that. It you would have been a very... Of... Sorry, Sorry, go on. Uh, you, you speak of his uh, restless anger and capricious violence which must be difficult for any child to live with. You also implied speaking now that that was not unusual. No, I don't think it, 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 I, it may not have been as unusual as it would be today, of course, where everyone has a perspective on most other people's lives. But we lived, we lived lives where we didn't understand how other people lived. They, so my father and mother socialised with their brothers and sisters uh, who lived similar lives. They were mostly lorry drivers, the sons, and, and labourers. And the wives were mothers who occasionally took paid work to, to bring up their children. Uh, it, it was difficult, but I, the, the strange thing is, we, the three children and my mother, lived, a, I, I won't say a separate life, but we had a different relationship with my mother. My father was often out of the house. He was at work, work long hours, and then sort of drank two or three, four nights a week out. And that was his society. We had a very, my mother was very caring. She was very loving, but she too, in her own way, was stuck on a trajectory from the age of, I think, about 14 or 15 when she met my father. And then she became pregnant, I think, at 18 or 19 with me. She was a very beautiful, very glamorous looking woman, my mother. Uh, and she was drawn into the relationship with him, for better or worse. And, they're, you know, they're still together. Uh, and it, uh, But my father's 
distance from the rest of us did bring us, I think, all three of the children closer to my mother. We lived a separate existence because she did not share a great deal of my father's life. He would spend that with men in bars. But she encouraged you in school. She encouraged you to write, to read and to think. Yes, I think I, I, I do remember uh, when I first went to school, I could read and write and do simple mathematics. Uh, I lost the mathematics, incidentally, along with most of the sciences. Uh, but I could, I, 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 someone must have taught me to do it. And I did remember going to my infant school and then my junior school before I passed my 11 plus and went to grammar school, which was a great turning point in my life. Uh, I do remember thoroughly enjoying what I did at school. A lot of children didn't, but I did. Uh, and I do remember learning stuff then, which I remember now. I was I avidly collected uh, cards from packets of tea. We always drank a lot of tea as a family, uh, and I would we would have to buy a, a couple of packets of loose leaf tea every day. Uh, and I collected, I knew everything about the animals of Africa, Asia, Europe, plants, butterflies, fish, the kings and queens of England. And I, I can only think that I learned it in this very ad hoc way. I wasn't a reader. We didn't have books in the house. Uh, I read comics. I read commando comics. Uh, and it wasn't until I was about 14 or 15 where I suddenly had to start reading books for my O-levels at school uh, that I became interested in reading. I didn't read a great many. I visited the library and took three or four books out a week. Uh, and it was a strange it was a strange upbringing. I wasn't an isolated child by any means. I wasn't brainy or swatty. I failed. I fail. I think I failed more than half of my O-levels the first time round and two out of the four A-levels I took. Uh, but it was, a, it was a grammar school and we took them all a year early so we could take them again a year later. In the and, yet, and, and yet you describe passing your 11 plus and going to grammar school in the first place as a most unusual situation for somebody in a family of your kind. Yes, it, it was. And, but I subsequently read lots of memoirs of people who did the same and who were told. I thought this was, a, I, I thought I was unique, of course, as most children do. But to be told at 11, and very few people in my school passed their 11 plus. There were, I think there were, there were five grammar schools in Sheffield. You know, it's the fourth or fifth biggest city in the country. Uh, and there were there were there were places for five thousand boys uh, and a couple and, and or girls because they were all boy or all girl grammar schools. What I didn't realise was that my youngest auntie had also gone to grammar school. She was the brains of the family, the baby of the family. Sadly, she died very young, uh, and she'd gone to grammar school. I was told, I, I, this is another strange fact, apart from passing him in the street, my, my immensely close friend, close friend, I didn't see again. I didn't, we lived a street apart and I do remember going to see him when our results came out and his mum telling me, you won't be seeing Andrew much from now on because you're going off to that school and he's going to another school. Uh, and it was a strange, it was a strange disconnect in my life. But ju and, and just just as I didn't know what university represented at 18, I didn't know what the grammar school would be at 11 mm -hmm. because I knew no one who'd been 
before. Your book, um, perhaps particularly because of the business, the control applied with the toupee, reminds me of Richard Volheim's memoir, Germs. Did you ever read that? No, no. It, it's a, he grew up in Isha or somewhere like that, I think. This is the philosopher. And although when you embark on it, you suppose that it's going to involve references to his Viennese background or whatever, it doesn't. It just, it's his mother was a hygiene fanatic. Oh, right. And it um, was obsessed by the germs coming through the windows. And so all the windows were permanently closed. And it has the most extraordinary sentence in it at one point, which says something like, the, I can honestly say that the phenomenon which has most affected me throughout my life is the smell of newspapers. It's the sense of the tiny, tiny thing, in your case, your father's wig. Well, I mean, it is strange. Uh, it wasn't a tiny thing at the time because, as I as I talk in the book, it affected our economy. Yeah, no, I, I don't mean tiny in that sense. I mean tiny in uh, the world's idea. Yes, I, I under, yes, I, I understand that ex exactly. Uh, and I think the, the the notion of the smell of. Uh, newspapers is, is actually quite interesting. Newspapers, different newspapers do smell. I, st I still light an open fire every day and I still know which newspapers <laughs> burn best at the front of the grate and the back of the grate. You don't want your kindling and coal to fall forward. You want it to tip back slightly. These are tiny little details. Um, it's, a lot, it's a bit like the smell of TCP. If you've used TCP as a child on, on cuts and bruises, left, right and center, the minute you smell it as a man of 65, it it's a it's a it's a thing. And yeah. the minutiae of that life remain with me. The smell and the taste and the feelings and the uh, and events remain with me. Uh, it but I, I suspect that's exactly the same in everyone's life. They they simply never reconsider it or never have to make sense of it as part of a you know a piece of writing. That's probably true, but the ability to conjure those or convey them is um, most unusual because it, it, such details are, are liable to dis dissipate in bathos or mm. inconsequential, mm. Um, whereas these details that you conjure, then they, they may be inconsequential in a sense, but because of the way in which they uh, impact on your young life, they have immense consequence. They do, and, and uh, speaking of, that, of those consequences, there's, there's nothing, or there's, I can't think of anything, very tiny pieces in the book about food. Food was incredibly important, um, and I deliberately kept them out. If I write another memoir, it will simply be me sitting down eating. Uh, <laughs> food meant a great deal to us. And, and looking back again, you know, I had a, a, a working class mother who had to provide five meals three times a day on a, a, a tiny budget. And we ate the same food over and over again. My father often had different meals to the rest of us. We ate a lot of cheap, poor food, which was absolutely delicious and which I still eat to this day. 
I was having a conversation this morning with someone who was a, a French woman who was talking about tripe. I love tripe. Mm -hmm. And I, I remembered eating e e udder as a child, cow's udder, a block of udder cooked in a pressure cooker. We ate offal, a lot of offal, and I, I love it to this day. I would much rather have a piece of liver or kidneys or tripe than I would a fillet steak. You, you, it's the sort of thing you might find in the back streets of Kathmandu, more likely, at the moment. You could find it in the back streets of most places, if you know <laughs> where to look. <laughs> Um, I mean, I, I may if 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 the interest sort of grabs me in the future, I may because I, I I love food. Uh, you can't see my stomach on this Zoom, obviously, but I <laughs> love food today. I do all the cooking in the house, all the shopping and cooking, uh, and I love cooking and I love entertaining people, uh, which is a thing we never did as children. We never, no one ever had a, a, a meal in the house, or we never sat down to eat a meal. We we had it on our knees or in bread, uh, but food. And I realised then, if I start, if I'd started writing about food, it would have become a memoir about food. I'm obsessed with food. I, th I go to sleep thinking about food. I wake up thinking about food, and that is no lie. That is on. I'm such a, I'm such a snob where food and drink are concerned. It's unbelievable. Um, you mentioned something about um, uh, deriving satisfaction in your the, your father's revelation of him wearing a toupee. I do, because I think I realised that here was a, 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 a signal failure, a failure which the world could look at. I'm sure he never regarded it as such, because it was a, a thing, a cut above, but it was an expensive cut above in a household where money was, you know, reasonably tight. And it was a controlling factor. And I, I think I, I, I understood at 12 or 13, whenever this happened, I think I understood then that here was a blatant signal to the world of what kind of man he was. And it wasn't simply the family behind closed doors looking at this, you know, controlling force in our lives. Um, and I, I think I took some satisfaction from that, although I would never have considered it that at the time. This is retrospective. Mm. Um, you, you say that you, you, you might write another memoir to do with food, but probably won't. But novels, you said right at the start, you said you thought you'd run out of steam with them. Do you really think you have? No, uh, I, I, I've, I've, I've just, I'm just not mot sufficiently motivated to do it at present. Uh, my, my entire routine has changed. And I used mm. to work, well, I did, I, I would still work incredibly quickly. I would write the first draft of those books in uh, two hours a day over five or six weeks and then spend the rest of the year getting them into their proper shape. Uh, I, I probably lost that kind of energy during lockdown. And we, you know, uh, my wife did, as I say, retired a couple of years ago. So I, the routine of our day has changed. I'm not making excuses or uh, laying any blame here. You know, it's quite nice. I've never, I've never made a living from writing novels, and yet I've never done anything else. Uh, so you know, it's just, a, it's, it's, a, it's a far nicer experience not to have to wake up worried about what you're <laughs> going to do for the rest of yes. the day. Yes. Uh, and it is, well, I mean, and, and you can talk. I mean, when was the last time you wrote a novel? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, quite. We won't go into that. <laughs> um, yeah. 
I hope you do write more novels, though, because they would come through to me, and it's like an old friend landing on my desk each time because of the voice. I find I find it harder and harder to judge whether the book is any good or not because mm. I'm so familiar with the voice, and it's 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 the sound of 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 a voice that I know. And almost whatever you write about, I think, okay, I I follow the dynamic here. Mm. Um, Well, well, I I think as well, not in my, I was going to say in my my favour, in my defence rather, I do. I used to read an immense amount of novels, and I've I've started about ten years ago. I started reading novels, and I couldn't see through the writing. There was too much writing and not enough of the novel in them. And it may it may be it may people nowadays say, oh, it's a it's a consequence of creative writing being taught. Uh, I'm not so sure that's true because you need you need to have something if you're going to write a novel in addition to stamina. You need to have the imagination and the capability and the oomph to do it. I just think I started reading books and thinking, oh, no, I can I can see what's happening here. And, you know, here's a bit of third person plural. Here's the here's the first narrative. There's the fifth and seventh character being introduced in chapters two. Mm-hmm. A bit like watching Midsummer Murders or Vera. You know that the, you know that the man arrested after 15 minutes is not the killer because there's yes. another two hours. And I, I was reading novels like that. Uh, and then strangely, I started reading. I've always been an, an avid fan of military histories and social histories and music and uh, uh, and uh, literary biographies and so I started reading and they're they're naturally much bigger books than novels Um, and and I started reading them and I found them considerably more satisfying they're harder to hold in bed because when you fall asleep they hit you and hurt you Uh, I'm just reading uh, uh, Bickerdyke's biography of Nico and yeah. uh, yeah. Uh, Paul, Paul Oster's biography of Stephen Craig. Which is immense. Yeah. It's, they're both immense. They're all immense. And I've still got the yeah. Philip Roth biography to get through. <laughs> and the David yeah. Story yeah. memoir. But I, I just find them, they're, they're more engaging. Yeah. I do yeah. read novels. I read lots of crime fiction still. Uh, to my guilty pleasure for an evening uh, when, when I lie in bed. I read a lot. I spend about three or four hours a day reading, but I, I'm suffering from insomnia. So I'm, I'm waking up at half past three, four o'clock most mornings. But, I, I, you know, I don't have anything to do. I don't have a ship to build or steel to build <laughs> or coal to mine. So I can just, I think, well, I'll lie here and read this biography of Stephen Crane. Nobody else is. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope that a lot of people are going to read your new book, which is unlike Paul Auster on Stephen Crane, um, Robert Edrick's new My Own Worst Enemy is very short and it is available at $14.99 from John Sanders. So do let us know if you'd like a copy. It is absolutely riveting. And our copies are not signed. And I suspect that Robert will not be coming to London if he is, then maybe he'll drop in. But if he's not, then I hope he might sign some book plates that I send him. I would, I would be, I would be more than happy to do that. Send me a thousand. <laughs> I'll send you a thousand. Perfect. <laughs> thank you. With which, Robert Edrick, thank you very much indeed. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs>